This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Tina Shresta, who is the author of the book, Surviving a Sanctuary City, Asylum-Seeking Work in Nepali, New York, published by the University of Washington Press. Dr. Shresta, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Regan, for inviting me to the New Books in Anthropology. Um, I feel very honored and privileged to be here speaking in, to you about this book. Um, yeah, yeah, the thanks. book, uh, I, I, I recently got my auto copy, so since I live in Japan, you know, it, it took a while. That's wow. To get my <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I'm I'm really excited that you're here to talk about the book, and um, I'm excited because for many reasons, but I'm excited to have a fellow Cornelian here who did their PhD in anthropology, and I'm grateful that I had you to accompany me when I was you know in graduate school, and I'm. I'm grateful that we were able to accompany each other on these journeys to write these books and to see them come to fruition is just, is like really wonderful. And so, um, so I know you, but can you talk about yourself a little bit to introduce yourself to the listeners and, um, you know, tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book, Surviving the Sanctuary City. Sure. Uh, and, and same here, Reagan, I think uh, writing 500 words a day in the anthropology department in Cornell really uh, was the beginning of how this book right, came to be conceptualized. But um, so there are two accounts of how I came to write this book. Um, the first one is more um, academic, sort of academic linear trajectory and field research circumstances. And the second one is more uh, nonlinear and I'll say uh, personal. So I'll start with the latter account and uh, reflect on how uh, it actually weaves in and out of the former, but never quite separate from it. Uh, and then I think I'll uh, maybe sum up, uh, you know, uh, who it's uh, from, from talking about how I came to write this book to who its intended audiences are. Um, so I have a particular interest in Nepal and the Nepali speaking migrant communities and diaspora. Um, as you know, I was born in Nepal. And my uh, family came to the U.S. when I was 13. We settled in Kentucky. <clears throat> so, yes, growing up in a um, you know, small, tight-knit Nepali migrant community um, in Kentucky and relatives elsewhere in the States, I was already surrounded by uh, migration stories, right, stories of everyday hardship um, brought upon uh, mainly by sort of underemployment, unemployment for many years, um, downward socioeconomic mobility, um, sort of uprooting of these familiar social lives um, and then extensive networks but then compounded by the gradual and persistent isolation and experience of marginalization for many working class migrants and families in the suburbs um, as well as in the cities but so even for those who enjoyed some financial security job stability um, 
um, there was, you know, still this sort of dilemma of uh, what I call surviving rather than thriving in America. So these stories were everywhere. So that, that's sort of my, I guess, a, a personal account of um, a personal experience. But then after college, finishing college in Kentucky, um, went to grad school in New York. Um, in, I guess you can say it was a ticket out of Kentucky and is also my working class family background, right? um, getting into Columbia. But that's uh, I'll touch, I'll go into it later. But I actually never you know, intended to study about Nepali migration or uh, migration per se. I mean, I entered the field of anthropology mainly because of the opportunity to do field research in Nepal. And, um, you know, just the sheer idea that someone will pay me to go back and forth between Nepal, visit relatives, sort of um, learn more about people, society, place that I, uh, my parents and family had left uh, over a decade. It was just an appealing um, lifestyle. And at Cornell, I obviously got uh, summer funding. Uh, <clears throat> sorry to do uh, exactly that, to go to Nepal, um, you know, during the summer, um, preliminary field site research and whatnot. So during that period, I was exploring uh, many research possibilities uh, for dissertation and being a 1.5 migrant, uh, I guess, immigrant or Nepali American who had not actually lived in Nepal for uh, more than a decade. Um, these visits allowed me um, glimpses sort of on the lived realities of people there. But also, uh, it was this realization that I had um, <clears throat> been absent for uh, during one of the um, greatest, I'd say, you know, political and sociocultural transformation in the country's history. That was the decade-long civil war. We'll talk about it uh, uh, later in the um, other question. But uh, but these visits were still important. That it provided a, a foundation to sort of understanding a different. Uh, why from different political moments people migrated and what were the conditions and for which groups. So it all depended on both the political history of the country, but also what was happening in the U.S. where, uh, where I was living and um, with my family. So, <coughs> so before entering Cornell's anthropology program and moving to Ithaca, I'd already been living in New York City a little over three years. Um, a year and a half of which I'd spent completing my master's at uh, Columbia University. It's a interdisciplinary uh, liberal studies master's program with a focus on South Asian studies. Um, so um, <clears throat> after moving to New York City, I was actually meeting people with shared um, like similar experiences of migration, like my family's and growing up in, um, in the American suburbs and not speaking your language in public, right? And seeing families, uh, relatives sort of uh, struggle with <coughs> unemployment, language, um, lack of health insurance benefits, all of this sort of the possible fear of being policed um, <laughs> in their daily lives. And so, you know, there's that, uh, and often these unspoken and marginal experiences in the suburbs were right and center in New York City, in Queens, where I found myself, I, I uh, lived different parts of Queens during my time. But there's, it was interesting because while attending Columbia University, South Asian, uh, South Asian, South Asian studies, I noticed this obvious disjuncture right, between courses I was taking, including South Asian history, literature, um, anthropology, like post-colonial studies, feminist, gender studies, and whatnot. 
And then the actual lives of people <clears throat> who lived just a train ride away in Queens. Um, and I think it was this discomfort. So, so that, that's one of the reasons how I came across, uh, or, or rather, I'd come across a lot of books by South Asian anthropologists, ethnic studies, um, mainly from you know, India and uh, Pakistan diaspora, so diaspora literature in the US. And there's not a single book about Nepali uh, population or Nepali um, um, migration stories and history of settlement and very different experience of legalization. I mean, fair enough, it was still a fairly sort of uh, Nepalese were newly arrived or newly arrived, you know, at the time. This was early 2000s. So there had only been <coughs> post 90s. There was a mass migration of Nepalese. So this fair, fair enough, you know, wasn't being taught. Um, but just the, just noticing this, this parallel world of other South Asians and Asian Americans in Queens were working class, non English speakers with minimal, you know, cultural capital who had uh, been living there, and they weren't. There was just a starkly different ex migration experience. They weren't going back and forth between uh, you know, India, Pakistan, Nepal, or New York City. They were living. So that en that that encounter was both, uh, um, you know, similar, but I guess my own family's experience fit somewhere in the middle um, um, of all this. Um, so that I think that sort of. Noticing that unequal relationship and different migration histories and legalization struggles of people, I'm slowly becoming aware of. But at the time, it's just observing right, and taking notes and whatnot. Um, and it was uh, actually, especially those initial years of living in New York City, that I became immersed in the world of uh, community, migrant community activists, advocates, and organizers, not only from South Asian um, migrant communities, but also from Latinos and other first and second generation, you know, immigrant families. So it was just uh, this cross, what they call it, you know, cross ethnic solidarities that involve raising awareness on immigration laws, legal policies, affecting migrant workers there. So I was just, I was just sort of observing there a lot, learning, you know, wasn't doing ethnographic research at the time. Um, <coughs> but all of these, in hindsight, provided kind of uh, um, provided an important insight into what the book talks about and I think I actually draw on and these other sort of personal um, and uh, sort of uh, personal histories that you know I, you, you see drawing on um, in the book. So it's gradually learning I mean, at the time how migrant labor and legality were interconnected and affecting lives of many uh, community members especially in the context of uh, New York City and Queens and um, and at the same time, the summer visits in Nepal was giving me a background for that, uh, without knowing at the time, background for the actual research that I would then do in um, in New York City. And uh, for, so that's how, let's see, you know, the book or the dissertation research was conceptualized at the time. Um, so through the book, then, <clears throat> through this book, I want to first direct uh, this reader's attention away from this quintessential upper, you know, middle class South Asian immigrant story, um, which is invariably about um, the hardworking first generation family that produced successful second and third generation immigrants, and to focus on the struggles of uh, the first generation really to make ends meet, and kind of it reproduces it in subsequent generations as well for uh, decades, and it's an attempt. Uh, through the book, it's an attempt to make room um, for these voices 
like for the first generation migrant diaspora communities. The majority of, I guess we call the quote-unquote failed attempts of living this American dream, that accounts for the successful <clears throat> South Asian <laughs> diaspora. Um, like I always like to say, like the you know the crazy rich Asians of the crazy, you know, it's not 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 the other version of the non, you know, crazy uh, rich Asians or South Asians. And secondly, um, and it's related to the, to the first one, is many people. Um, so the struggles were also often related to these like liminal legalities or the legal, the prolonged uh, temporary statuses. And because of that, they were laboring under harsh conditions um, in the in the tri-state areas of uh, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, and and actually in found employment in the um, within the same so the South Asian diaspora, diaspora community, sort of their uh, socioeconomically mobile um, counterparts. So another so the another reason was that uh, so some of the same people, like people who are stuck in these uh, liminal legalities, laboring under harsh conditions for decades and generations, even, um, you know, they're just toiling away, not knowing if and when they'll get a, a permanent residency in the US, or which means, you know, not knowing whether or not they'll be reunited with their families, like their kids left behind, like, you know, for a decade or longer. And this kind of marginalization of intergenerational experience that is seldom articulated in the wider South Asian literature, South Asian American literature, and um, you know, even anthropology courses are uh, taking. Um, so whether it is written about or tangentially referenced, reference it is either framed under sort of ethno-national difference or explained away by uh, referring to sort of you know inter-ethnic exploitation based on gender and caste that are reproduced uh, within the diaspora and. So while this is not untrue, yes, you know, this, uh, based on gender and caste hierarchies and how um, the regional differences apply, but such uh, explanations also do not account for larger social structure in the states. Like upon, like after having been migrated, what, do, what, you know, how, how do these? Let's say, even if it is inter-ethnic exploitation, then how are these reproduced and what and sustained, right? And then sort of manifest in different ways the conditions of uh, migrant labor. Um, like that subordination is not, it's inseparable from the related history of immigration laws and policies in the U.S. At different, like during different political moments. So I wanted to acknowledge not just the, uh, not only the undocumented status of migrants or how that creates all these other problems, related problems, but also actually the undocumented labor of workers in the migrant and uh, diaspora communities, and what I call uh, like silent and silenced uh, workers and how it has an impact, far-reaching impact on the community itself, how it's viewed, how it's sort of uh, by community members itself. So, so besides initiating conversation about um, <clears throat> marginalization, I also want, hopefully the book will also initiate conversation about privilege within the Nepali and South Asian and larger Asian American groups and circles that focus on particular segment of the population here as you know, asylum seekers and migrants in their precarious uh, labor conditions. I wanted the book to resonate also with, uh, with marginalized migrant youth, particularly of 1.5 or second generation immigrants with lower socioeconomic uh, background. Um, I was thinking of uh, dreamers, right, and who have come of age, and especially minoritized youth, uh, 
migrant youth who have witnessed their relatives and loved ones and uh, not reunited with families for you know a decade and how <clears throat> they witnessed their parents' precariousness kind of visceral and long-term impact than those social process have had on their own education, upbringing, um, and their um, career aspiration, perhaps. So in other words, um, the book is also an attempt to acknowledge and validate the lived experience of both the parents and the grandparents and generation of these dreamers and youth and uh, uh, activists and migrant advocates across the US. So um, to, to move on to you know who its intended audiences are, and for all the reasons that I've just mentioned, um, it's precise. It's written for the uh, wide, with the various audience in mind. Um, as an academic book, it is written for scholars, practitioners, obviously students of anthropology, people interested in um, looking to immigration enforcement in the U.S. and contemporary immigration laws and policies, and those uh, interested in refugee and critical asylum studies. Asian and South Asian diaspora, but as a documentation of the worldviews and lived experience of these marginalized communities, um, you know, it's a, a, I'm hoping that it adds to the ongoing efforts and dialogue around migrant advocacy organization, uh, community organization, activism in uh, cities like New York in the North, but also uh, elsewhere um, <clears throat> for um, larger South Asian migrant communities and non-South Asian migrant communities outside the U.S. As, I'm, uh, as I've been away from the U.S. for almost a decade now and living in different um, major Asian cities and some of these questions are still are not um, you know um, complete uh, are still relatable not the asylum seeking obviously is very different but the immigration and the migrant labor how it works um, the infrastructure around migration um, are not very different and the marginalization generations of people in these uh, cities, global cities. So as an analysis of, uh, coming back to the book, the analysis of the contemporary U.S. immigration laws and asylum policies, the book um, would be of interest to policymakers and immigration officials um, as it shed light into the ways asylum bureaucracy and documentation works and how they are experienced not only individually, but also how it has uh, far-reaching impact on uh, marginal communities. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, so I have actually spoken with uh, USCIS, US immigration, uh, US immigration and Citizenship Services, like the Department of Policy Strategies and, um, and asylum officers. So during book talk, and you know, they were very interested and, and obviously they only talked about the chapters that were relevant to that audience. And, um, and, I, and that that has been actually ongoing the conversation with them. And fourth intended audience, I think I've already talked about, is the larger uh, Nepali diaspora um, and migrant communities, not only in the U.S. or global north, but also um, in places closer to home, like from you know India to Malaysia and Qatar um, and to Japan and Hong Kong, um, <clears throat> where actually my country is based. Uh, based on sort of the immigration or Nepali migration trajectories in these places. So, um, yeah, I think it, I sort of expanded the question from, you know, how I came to write uh, this book to who its audiences are. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for that. That was, 
That was great. Um, it was really important, I think, to talk about, you know, who you wrote the book for. Um, usually we have to think about this anyway when we write the proposal for the book or the prospectus. So, um, you know, so we were forced to articulate this, um, you know, whenever we are also conceptualizing the book and bringing it through the, the publishing process. So I think that, I think that's great to, to share that. And, um, and when you talked about this disjuncture that you saw between the classes that you were taking in the university and in, in like anthropology and social science classes and the literal people living in the neighborhood, just a train ride away is so important to hear, I think for, um, students, um, other you know, people interested in migration and these, and these questions, because it, you know, it really just goes to show like, this is where these ideas come from. You know, they, they come from our lived experiences, our observations, um, you know, things that we're, that we're looking at. So I think that's always important to hear for other people when they're, when they're thinking about their own projects and, you know, these questions of migration and immigration are really only becoming more central and more prescient, not, not less. So the book is very, uh, you know, pertinent to, to think about right, you know, right now. Um, and so that, that leads me to the next question, I guess, which is about the arguments for the book. Um, and so the book is going to repeat the title. Um, it's called surviving the sanctuary city asylum seeking work in Nepali, New York. And one of the arguments I saw the book making, and you kind of just talked about that a little bit, was the process of seeking asylum is work or labor. Um, but I wanted to invite you to to talk about, um, you know, what the book is about, and you know what you're arguing in the book. Great. Um, thank you. Thank you for yeah jumping right you know into the argument of the book, the key argument. Uh, yes, and you know as you correctly pointed out, the book is arguing that asylum seeking uh, process itself, how, how is it a work in asylum seeking as work, how it's seen as work. So one of the book, uh, book's key argument is that asylum seeking provision in the 25th century US uh, functions to incorporate low wage, what uh, anthropologists like Nicholas and other generalizers, deportable migrants, uh, deport, uh, deportable migrants into the society through their own labor subordination. And I add to that conversation to say, well, how it's done through this protracted condition of legality, aka you know, seeking asylum, like asylum seekers, where it, it just can go on and on, you know, as you've seen. But uh, but rather than separating labor from legalization, in this case, asylum legalization, I'm arguing that the contemporary asylum process itself, you know, is part of uh, interior immigration enforcement and how it works and it, how. A, how it works as interior for, uh, immigration enforcement within the borders, because you always hear of asylum seekers, and you know, there's a caravan van in the border uh, areas, the border crossers, uh, the you know, policing of that. But I wanted to shed light into it with the policing of you know, uh, people who are already here, already within the internal borders of the US, how that works. Um, and then how asylum legalization also sustains, sort of uh, sustains this low wage. Uh, labor reserve of migrant uh, workers, like racialized migrant workers. And, and in this case, of the case uh, with the Nepali uh, uh, migrants and asylum seekers is the case that I present. Um, so this prolonged, like I've mentioned, uh, you know, the fact that this prolonged asylum seeking process and uh, um, legal limbo that people are in um, is not preventing right, migrants from seeking and obtaining employment. 
low-wage employment, often under harsh conditions of physical and manual labor without any benefits or health care. So that tells us that asylum process may not be actively creating a labor reserve, but it definitely draws on this prolonged indefinite legal conditions and deepening sort of you know migrants recruitment into this precarious labor and livelihood. And this key argument in the book that uh, is derived from ethnography among Nepali um, speaking migrants and asylum seekers. So in the Nepali speaking community, for example, asylum seeking itself was was being discussed uh, as a type of labor, as a type of uh, work that is um, non-remunerable, right? And yet it required this range of repeated and continuous suffering and what they call, uh, what culminated into uh, making paper. Right? So the two concepts I develop, dukkha, uh, Nepali concepts of dukkha, suffering, and making paper, like Kagos Banauni. That was actually one of the first, one of the first articles I wrote right after finishing dissertation and, you know, and how, um, so it has, it's also, it's that, it's those two concepts that uh, provide, let's say, meat to the book, right? Like, uh, <clears throat> the two overlapping concepts that is developed in the book. And ultimately how this individualized suffering accounts um, in asylum, through seeking asylum, and through work, as they discuss as type of work, because it's either interrupting their work or either they had to quit work, their day job, to do this kind of work. So they were still being articulated. People's, you know, my informants were still articulating in terms of work. And then the community activists, organizers who I was working closely with, were you know, interpreting uh, and seeing it as how it has sort of a far-reaching influence, a uh, consequence for producing this, um, what I call a visibility of silent, um, suffering migrant community and practice of censorship that becomes a survival strategy for the community. And we'll talk more about it, I think, in your other question about the visibility and the paradox of that visibility when um, you know disengagement is not an option, then what are the terms and conditions in which you engage in this case, the state or state authorities? So in this way, this US state actually provides opportunities to enable asylum claims that do not, do, like, never counteract the labor productivity of these claimants, right? Um, although it continues, the state continues to restructure the pathways, realms, and these unequal terms through which these asylum claims can be um, made, right, articulated or sustained during different political moments. So that's where I draw in US uh, immigration history and asylum um, <clears throat> provisions and when. Nepalis specifically became um, eligible for these provisions. Um, so this contributes to the key finding of the book, basically asylum in the U.S. as an important yet often less understood part of this interior immigration enforcement within the borders. And um, um, along with that, the equally important um, case of the asylum backstage I talk about, or um, that we I think we'll discuss later again in your follow-up question, um, how the U.S. state um, is mobilized uh, through asylum, some issues right, to prominence, like the culturally interpretable suffering performance that is infused with um, clients' industriousness, like, you know, they're paid as taxpaying workers, um, and hence making them claimant workers. So the whole asylum becomes part of uh, producing this claimant workers, and like that's sort of inseparable from. Um, their daily labor outside of laboring for asylum, doing asylum, and as well as being migrant workers. So 
Uh, that's the uh, that's the overall uh, argument on how Nepali case sort of shows that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. Um, that's a great overview for the book, and it helps us understand then, um, which I will ask you about the you know asylum backstage and people in these protracted asylum cases that you kind of take us through in the different chapters of the book. But I wanted to also just begin with the the book um, and the the community, the Nepali community that you're that you're talking about, um, because you you open the book with the NGO Adhikar, which I think is where you were kind of based, um, and you talk about you know the book is Nepali uh, Queens, I think is where you were doing the research, and so I noticed in the book you have multiple photos in the book, but the first photo is the door of Adhikar, which is the organization, and then I love it because the book kind of takes us through the door and into the organization and like into this like larger Nepali community in um, in Queens, which I don't, which possibly one may not necessarily know is such a thriving presence in the city if, if one is not already a part of the community or, or already knows about it. Um, and so I, I love how you take us through the door and you take us into this community. So I wondered if you could talk about um, what was Adhikar and, you know, how did it figure into your research? Yeah, thank you. Um, when I read the yeah, the question is uh, very nicely put. I, you know, the whole the framing of questions evocatively and yeah, providing a nice visual for uh, our audience and listeners. Um, uh, honestly, I will not take credit that that was intentional. Like that was your first photo in the book, and and you know, unfortunately, it's not colored, right? So it's the red door uh, with a, a sign of Adhikar. It's written in Nepali and in English. Um, then it actually become a part of my daily routine for two, almost three years, with volunteering with different workers' rights programs and facilitating, especially facilitating English uh, English language classes there. So, um, and you're absolutely right. You know, it, it sort of it, it, metaphorically speaking, it, the door that door also opened doors, you know, for me to the social world of um, community members, activists, and uh, volunteers, organizers. Uh, who are aware of many of its members' dilemmas that as, that I talk about in the book, their struggles and kind of exploitative labor conditions that they were part of. So <clears throat> in many ways, I had the opportunity then to learn of the diverse and unequal conditions of Nepali-speaking community, or my uh, people um, who did not come from urban centers like Kathmandu, which my family did, right, or any other cities. Uh, major cities, but were from uh, different parts of Nepal, regions of Nepal, uh, North India, Tibet, and Bhutan. So you can say that um, while I did not do the um, you know um, conventional village anthropology in Nepal, <laughs> I was equally I should actually learning more so about the regional linguistic and ethnic diversity and longstanding historical inequalities that, that uh, uh, in these regions um, are continuing to. to play out in the diaspora and their very different experience of legalization, migration uh, trajectory. And through the uh, through um, 
Adhikar colleagues and activists, uh, fellow volunteers, I was also confronted with the privilege that came from my cultural capital and education background in Nepal. So, you know, in the first question I talked about sort of the marginalized experiences of uh, uh, immigrants, but also there's like this privilege right, confronting, okay, well, how do you, and um, especially in my conversation with activists and sort of learning community organizers like uh, Nobelidi and uh, the founder of Adhikar, uh, Luna, was, she's actually a long-time uh, friend, I knew her from before, um, she started Adhikar. So when I was conducting field uh, research right, and living in Queens, it was uh, at the same time that Adhikar was founded in 2005. So we were already, you know, I was already part of the conversation with the, uh, with the Nepali and the South Asian migrant advocate uh, groups and uh, grassroots organizations. And um, at the time, Luna with her colleagues, you know, they had, uh, were already preparing like, to establish Adhikar in 2005. And I started um, uh, my program, uh, I joined Cornell's program in 2006. So in that year, I was already aware of the organization work, volunteering and um, you know, raising awareness in the communities and actually going from like door to door, like Luna and her colleagues, like they had friends were going really door to door to uh, map out what were the uh, the hurdles, the challenges in people face, especially sort of looking at the labor exploitation and um, lack of healthcare, you know, lack of um, sort of having information and language class or like, not having a language was obviously one of the hindrances for the uh, lot of the community members. So I was already aware of that work, and like I said, you know, previously, um, when I entered an anthropology anthropology program, it was sort of my interest to just go to Nepal back and forth. And um, but because I'd already been aware of the organization's work and people who were invested during my time in New York City, or every time I visited from Ithaca. I was still, you know, I would go to these events. Adhikar would organize for its uh, community members, um, workshops. So that was, I guess, yeah, that, that was, I was already aware of it. And then in the book, um, I wanted to um, kind of um, show and um, the audience, the readers, that, you know, it, it was through literally entering that door and that a lot of doors opened uh, for me as as a researcher, as an ethnographer, to not only talk to the uh, activists um, and community organizers, but also its members who you know who are uh, were visiting um, on a regular basis and then become actively part of the, the community itself. And, and chapter two in the book is where I detail Adhikar's work right after coming going to that work uh, through the into the world of Adhikar and through our program and I wanted to document how like these uh, the seemingly kind of mundane commentaries that people were making about workplace grievances and that the fact that they had to learn English um, um, are actually key to understanding sort of the pervasive and ordinary forms of suffering that working class non-English speakers and uh, migrants and you know, uh, asylum claimants dis disproportionately experience. So at the same time, through that work, I was also I got I was volunteering, uh, or interpreting rather in different contexts. So as, as I was teaching English, I was volunteering in the uh, community center. I was also uh, interpreting for people in hospitals and schools, and then 
and slowly in these uh, asylum institutions through human rights agencies. And, you know, at the time, um, so really through Adhikar is where I had um, entered this different world of um, Nepali uh, migrants and refugees and asylum seekers that I, I, I just not thought about before. Right? And the things we take it for granted um, and how that um, that their whole life and livelihood depended on that. Um, so then, so the, that's why the book, kind of, through the book, I kind of want to also trace my own journey, journey and then uh, present presented to the audience um, uh, just like the way I, I sort of experienced, if, if that makes sense. You know, I came, became aware of their other world, sort of not just the labor, but the legal labor that they were doing in the asylum institutions. And then to come back, and then it was precisely uh, then coming back and then re-engaging with the community members, activists, and uh, in chapters five and six, when it circles back, to um, like digging deeper into the work that activist organizers uh, and community members were doing, and it then became a dialogue. And it's and it's so it's in some ways it's not an end, I, you know, it's a continuation of these uh, um, dilemmas, not only for the community members, but also community organizers and activists. They continue to do like the kind of work they do, and then it's an opening. So the conclusion is also an opening to uh, this. Um, continuous dialogue and off these uh, silenced or silent sort of workers and that they're serving that they're uh, assisting with so um so yes the work of activists and community organizers like the leaders like Lina and Abada really all of you know I don't talk about everybody but those two I you know I had the most um I spent most of time most of my time with them um, learning from them talking to them and I continue to yeah uh, be amazed by you know their their different I guess positions social positions in the community, but also this drive to um, um, make lives better or easier. And um, so the host of the it it has expanded now. The community center at the time I was volunteering so almost a decade ago, like three years, two thousand eleven, twelve, single story now it's two story and then there are different kinds of other other issues that uh, they're assisting uh, mem- you know Nepalese with um, one of them is the uh, the TPS temporary protected status that they're fighting for so you can yeah go to Adhikar's work so it's you know it's ongoing I think as, as ethnographers we all know we collect data at a particular period in time and then all people's lives continue and then um, some of us get the opportunity to do follow-up and others um, although I've moved away uh, and I'm not in touch with them so I continue to engage with them Um, um, and that has had a yeah biggest impact on my own uh, I think research. Mm -hmm. So the organizers I'm sure are still there organizing and um, you know working away and as you said the you know, we kind of come come in and out, but obviously the same issues continue and the organizations continue there as well. Um, so I wanted to also ask about a kind of a, it's another like contextual question, I guess, where um, the book is also a story of migration and community. Um, and we talked about asylum, but of course, before people are going to uh 
try to, you know, go through the, the asylum process, they have to, of course, migrate um, to the United States. And so I wanted to ask, um, when did Nepalis begin migrating to the U.S. And um, in the book, you know, you, you break migration into three different groups of migrants um, over different time periods. And so I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about this migration and what pushed Nepalis um, out of the country and into the United States. Um, sure. Yeah, thank you for that uh, contextual question again. Um, so I... I you're right. I break it down into three groups or three generations um, because so Nepali migration to the U.S. Uh, it the first group is uh, um, entail those arriving as uh, actually graduate students or post yeah post graduate and professionals in the develop uh, sort of the development area or what I call development decade 1950s to 60s where USAID had its <clears throat> you know office in 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 Nepal, and there were through Fulbright and all these other programs that you're aware of, right? bringing in postgraduate students and then professionals, and some of them stayed, legalized uh, their um, uh, status. And uh, some of my um, relatives, who I actually met in the U.S., did that. Okay, uh, and so there's that that group or generation. So mostly uh, middle class, urban, educated elite um, um, from city sort of sent yeah, centers like Kathmandu. And the second group or second generation entails and families and extended relatives of these naturalized uh, citizens uh, who become natural citizens and where my family came in in the 90s. Um, but also it was through reuni family reunification and meanwhile the student and work visa sponsorships continued through the 90s. And uh, maybe our some of our um, listeners, audience already know, there was a the decade-long uh, civil war in Nepal between 1994 to 1995 to 2005 2006, um, which coincided, obviously, with the um, <clears throat> events of 9-11-2001 in the U.S. So that's when, uh, well, making Nepali really both all, already in the country were holding either irregular statuses or, the, or those newly um, arrived and looking to regularize, regularize their status, they were they became eligible for asylum provision um, because uh, what well, the Maoist civil war then came under the terrorist uh, label and all the problems uh, that go along with it. But uh, <laughs> so that's when the provision, asylum provision, become you know more um, available. Let's say for a Nepali population. And it's actually not just his, you know specific history of Nepali, uh, but if you look at the asylum provisions, who were the first uh, people who became eligible population Latino, right? Um, the Colombian. Um, um, so we won't go into that. But the Nepalis only became um, eligible after, obviously, after the the civil war uh, or during that period. So at the same time, they also had diversity. The US does diversity visas um, around the world. But the post 9-11 decade um, in the US, when it was going through sort of socioeconomic and political transformations, the INS, or Immigration and Nationalization Service, introduced the Homeland Security Act in, in 2002. So this place, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, now what we call ICE, and Customs and Border Protection, directly in charge of asylum decisions. So after that, it, it was more, you know, it wasn't that people um, weren't 
legalizing through asylum, but it was very small number of people legalizing or seeking asylum. But that decade, 2001 to 2010, and my research started in 2009, 2010, when a lot of people were sort of uh, you know, doing asylum or seeking um, asylum to legalize their status. So, so those are the those are the three uh, period I kind of um, divide um, kind of mass migration of Nepalis and continue to. I mean, I think now we can add the fourth generation after um, after the earthquake in Nepal in 2015. So those are the ones who are now you know, have been in the country um, eligible for or seek temporary protected status, and, and so it's an ongoing. But um, I guess one of the uh, one of the things I want to do in the book was not to isolate the context for Nepali migration just in the Nepali political history, but also you know in dialogue with what was happening in the U.S. Why U.S. U.S. was not the only place that Nepali Nepalis migrate. Right? It's actually um, everywhere else. But the mass migration and what pushed Nepali, what you call the mass migration of Nepalis, what pushed Nepalis out of the country was. Uh, arguably, this decade-long civil war and um, the decade after the civil war, the reconstruction period, where there's no like impl- under, uh, yeah, un- uh, unemployment and all the political instability, and th- that's like the standard narrative of why Nepalis migrate. And in the meantime, you have you continue to do seek out student visas and work visa sponsorships, family unification. Those all uh, continue. Um, and as I'm learning that I've been uh, living outside the U.S. for a decade and in other countries where, you know, mass migration of Nepali started at a different political moment, depending on the immigration policies and labor laws of that country. So in Japan, has a you know, very specific history of this, uh, that uh, intake Nepalis through student visas, for instance. Um, so, so, yeah, but going back to the book. Uh, since the, the research, actual research uh, or conducted you know, end, uh, ends at 2012, 2013, I don't go on and talk about the uh, the incoming Nepalis, for instance, right? the, uh, after 2014 and 2015, sorry, after the uh, major earthquake in Nepal. And that's another driving force, uh, natural disasters and uh, continued political disasters, I, uh, I suppose. But um, to the U.S., these are the yeah three contexts that I um, map out in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the the that was that's really important because the as you as you said, the Civil War seems to be one of the main um, uh, events. Like it's a ten year ten year Civil War that's pushing people um, out of the country, and it seemed to also you know come up in these asylum cases, of course, that you were following in the book as well, and so. Um, and so I wanted to turn to your analysis of asylum because uh, many of your participants were, of course, seeking asylum, as you just said, and you accompany them um, through, you know, through the process of seeking asylum as an interpreter. And, and so this involves these long drawn out series of like filing forms, preparing their testimony, discerning what constitutes suffering for asylum purposes. And so it really comes across in the book 
as this protracted process that requires a lot from the, from the person who's, you know, who's seeking asylum. And so you talk about this concept in the book called the, the asylum backstage. Um, and I'm putting that in quotes um, because it's your concept that you develop in chapter four. And, you know, and so you take us through these different stages of the process. And so what is the asylum backstage? And um, can you tell us a little bit about what happens there? Yeah, thank you, Regan. I think, you know, uh, for this important question and pulling out, like, yeah, this concept of asylum backstage, where I was also immersed as an interpreter, like you said, pointed out, Nepali English interpreter, and uh, witnessing, observing, writing, uh, really talking <laughs> uh, for claimants and their lawyers in, uh, in this asylum backstage. So, <clears throat> as you rightly mentioned, people are going through these various stages, like the screening stages, eligibility interviews. And I, you know, um, after interpreting and when I had the data and well, it wasn't during the dissertation writing, but really when I was writing the book, it, it sort of slowly, you know, some distance from it, then you realize, oh, you know, these are the different stages. If I break it down, it's much more easier to understand. And it also goes back to the question about how was asylum seeking a labor and you know where does this labor take place and whose labor and, and who uh, who its audience uh, audiences are for this labor so this asylum backstage um, I broken down into four asylum backstage so first is when uh, cl- uh, claimants uh, Nepali claimants in this case are going through this initial uh, screening and eligibility like if they're it's just seeing if they're eligible to uh, file asylum or not. And the, this happens in um, human rights um, agencies. Um, so, the, and this is this is where, um, you know, um, the claimant who, who goes through this, like a whole host of uh, questions about their life history, about their, their lives in Nepal, why they migrated, uh, um, you know, what, so if they're eligible, what, on what grounds they're seeking asylum. So that, that's where this happens. And in these, uh, <clears throat> once they've passed the screening stage and an eligibility interview, um, it's the asylum backstage two, right, where they get, their cases get transferred to uh, law firms, private law firms, and these are all uh, litigators, like pro bono uh, legal assistance they receive. Um, while it doesn't necessarily guarantee, as you see, you know, claimants um, of, of people obtaining asylum, but it does nonetheless uh, provide them with a chance of being in a pathway for but potentially, and this is all this potentially, <laughs> um, the space where, yeah, it provides this, but they can potentially obtain asylum. Uh, but before I actually say, uh, go into backstage, I want to mention that this is, these are all what it's, uh, US government talk, uh, categorizes it affirmative frames. So the defensive asylum frames and affirmative asylum frame. The book discusses you know, in detail. Uh, defensive are the ones that are rejected in, uh, you know, on the borders or when the people arrive immediately and then they have to. So that's a defensive frame. The asylum affirmative frame came much later. Actually, it was introduced only in the 90s, um, I think. <laughs> um, anyway, the chapter talks about that. So, and I was, because I was interpreting um, um, in human rights agencies, you know, also through Adhikar, like in these human rights agencies, um, it was all affirmative cases, uh, aff- affirmative frame that were being applied to the asylum. People have been living in the country for a long time and then seeking asylum afterward. 
uh, or they had been, you know, been um, they were they were trying to change their visa from the religious visa to uh, asylum, uh, asylum like legal, uh, so legalization in different uh, um, stages. So asylum backstage uh, two, and I started categorizing where they are actually meeting uh, uh, not just lawyers, but lawyers are putting together the affidavit, the case for them, and then you know all these claimants are all they have to meet expert witnesses. I I think I, don't, I maybe we'll talk about it later, but the case you saw with uh, Chiring's case, where you know you're meeting medical professionals, uh, psychologists, and country research. Uh, country what they call country uh, country condition report writers um, um, and sometimes actually anthropologists are right like say you know um, kind of corroborating and saying yes this happened in this time this location like the mouse attack so like all all these documents are being uh, collected on behalf of this uh, claimant and the claimant goes through a lot of uh, interviewing like questioning like by different um, like medic, yeah, from medical practitioners, professionals to uh, um, expert witnesses that are arranged for them, and I, you know, I, you know, you're interpreting. So in some cases, I interpreted in the hospitals also to kind of uh, corroborate like the, you know, the scar that was sustained from the said events in know, 2004, 2005 is yes from this uh, gunshot or wound and all of that. So, I mean, these law firms like. So I slowly, you know, realize that this claimant is actually instructed that how to narrate this account, and then I call, I call it suffering account, like repeatedly, and these fragmentary narrations of these, you know, their decontextualized images are converted into this coherent narrative, and then a lot of these silences, um, just like our interview, like I would question you, your silences, moments of abrupt uh, interruptions, they're all kind of packaged into a nice, uh, uh, smooth affidavit. And, you know, but at the same time, what this means is that these asylum backstages also um, um, overlook or, you know, uh, disregard misinterpreted possibilities that occur the entire time. Like not, not not only because of the language that, you know, Clement was speaking Nepali, I was then translating into back into, back to uh, English, uh, English to lawyers and advocates. And then they were, then you know, telling me what to tell the claimants, and I was then um, <laughs> repeating their uh, back in uh, Nepali, so that it wasn't just uh, language uh, possible misinterpreted possibilities of language that I was I witnessed. It was just the, even the whole concept of how suffering has come to be imagined, or what kind of persecution and the su- suffering based on said persecution are imagined by all these you know host of uh, people assisting asylum seekers so there's also that that going on and then i thought oh in all the asylum literature it's onus is always on the asylum claimant or even in the anthropological literature in asylum in the u.s and europe you talk about the narrative um, you know performance the narrative disjuncture the misinterpreted possibilities in the courtrooms in the asylum offices and i said well hold on a minute like, what you know this important backstage that happens it's not only the claimants that are performing, the lawyers are performing, right? The, the um, human rights agents are performing, like, you know, and without, you know, actually, they have a role also in this performance. They're the writer, script writer, whatever you call it, right? That's where I 
talk about the co-construction of these testimonies and suffering and um so that that to me was very interesting and kind of, it, it you know the beginning was just mind-boggling so i had to just come back and just write about it just to process it's like well, I'm also participating in this narrative, right? And one um, one of my informants actually said, "Oh, now you're also part of my story." And 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 I think I wanted to bring that um, out in the book. Like, you know, you have to consider what happens in these backstage and the documentation, for instance, documentation of I five eighty nine form or application form for asylum and withholding of removal. Um, and you know, the, the what what is categorized as asylum backstage three in the book. Uh, there's uh, so many people um, and so many hours right, of week, months, six months spent on that two questions, you know, the said persecution and the two questions you spent six, really up to a year answering that question and repeatedly. And then, um, you know, the, um, if basically the past persecution and um, the, the possibility of um, future prosecution if sent back. Those are the two questions that lawyers and uh, once it reaches the private law firm that they really dwell on. And, you know, and um, in some ways, I, all, I almost saw um, lawyers being more tensed and anxious to get, you know, words out of the claimant, right, than, than the clients. They were like, oh my God, I have to go back to my work. And, you know, this is taking so much of my time. And that's why, you know, that's how it actually started becoming free labor on the part of the claimants and, and for what like without knowing whether or not they'll actually get asylum so that's ha- that's why i thought the, you know the backstages that i uh, that's what's happening like the the other actors involved in constructing this testimonies that are being delivered in courtrooms and delivered in uh, asylum offices it's not a just in a work of one person one claimant but it goes through so many reincarnation kind of like a book you know from the time you conceptualize and the time you do research and collect data and interpret and um except you have control of the narrative of the book um and here it's you know it's affidavit is sort of like book for clients where so many people have entered and makes it and they, they and after going through asylum like asylum work or in these backstage for sometimes for years uh, sometimes it's short six months but a year, two years, and I've seen up to you know four years, three, four years, where people have like, well, you know, I'm I can't be recollecting you know like my memory from what happened ten years ago. I've been living in the U.S. and going through much more you know hardship. I had like other priorities, like I have to you know, work, send money home. So that's where I saw you know people kind of um, um, navigate and have a difficult time navigating this backstage. And the final backstage, asylum backstage, is the witness preparation session where they really grilled and you know, they get uh, or pre- get prepared for cross examination in the courtroom and uh, asylum offices. And then, you know, when you get there, even so, as an interpreter, I was also invested. Right, uh, lawyers actually, one lawyer even you know mentioned, <laughs> you know, when the person, when the client becomes emotional, can you also be emotional, not be like stoic? You know, so like all these various instructions to me as well so um and i thought okay this these are the important stages that i don't see i don't read about it in in the asylum literature in anthropology or um you know what happens before the decision is made or or during the courtroom uh, 
hearing or asylum interview, it's like a, there's a lot going on. And then that this work that's going on from both uh, clients and um, lawyers, advocates, interpreters is just an equally important that contributes to that understanding the asylum framework or the asylum, um, um, or, or at least open in conversation again in that sense, this less understood um, bureaucratic um, stages of asylum. And people are, there, people are doing it in the context of the Europe, but they you know, have interviewed asylum officers and like the decision-making that they go through and how it's part of all the work that they do. But I thought the asylum backstage in carving out the specific backstage and where claimants met with clients and interpreters, all these, let's say, um, you know, misinterpretations that happen. I wanted to show it the way they work, they work out, and from all sides, and and the the kind of suffering imaginations that people have from human rights agencies to law firms to finally even the judge, right? And and this its onus is on the claimant to perform uh, in a particular way, or his performance sort of is scrutinized. Yet other people, you know, it doesn't affect other people, and where all of us are performing in this act. So, so I yeah, I wanted to sort of bring that out and um, um, in the book, and just leave it uh, for really readers to go through these uh, um, backstage, like diff- these different stages of backstage and kind of uh, what each it, it entailed. Um, and how they uh, people become sort of um, entangled, you know, for years, and like this is this is how the protracted legality works. You know, when you say protracted legality, well, this is how it works, and um, you know, and after all this, they might still not get asylum. Um, so I don't know if that yeah answers um, the importance of backstage uh, sort of um, categorizing or mm-hmm. looking at backstage. Yeah, no, that's a great uh, description. And that was really fascinating. Um, you telling us right now, but also reading it in the book was just, um, it was that was really engrossing part. I was, you know, going through each section and, and you follow these different cases through and tell us about you and, you know, you know, your role in it and bringing in all these different people. So that was a really, really fascinating part of the book and of the narrative. Um, and I think you also just talked about this protracted legality, which might then lead to this kind of tie back into the argument of the book. Um, because, and we kind of talked about this earlier, another aspect of asylum that comes across is that asylum seeking is work. And so I took a quote from you, and this is kind of in chapter five, um, you write, Asylum seeking came to be interpreted on the same continuum as other work that takes up uh, people's time. And so, um, and so, and I, I think this, you can kind of see this again in what you're talking about, these like these six month, a year, two year cases um, or, or longer. Um, and so how was asylum like another job or another form of work for the, for the people seeking it? Thank you for pulling out that quote. Um... You know, the asylum seeking how it came to be interpreted on the same continuum as other work. Um, and it's only later, right, talking about asylum backstage, I also, once I was already uh, enmeshed in people's lives and clients, after they've been asylum, they would 
often talk about how much work they had to do or how hard they worked. But uh, so my Nepali-speaking informant right, pointed out that uh, making paper again, like this uh, or legal assignment legalization through pro bono legal assistance was uh, was not a readily available option for many, many of them. So my interaction with people outside Adhikar and outside asylum interpretation context made me aware of this sort of uh, potentially you know, double-blind situation for people who had been living and they're already working in the country for almost a decade. And because of the uh, you know, uh, immigration, stringent immigration laws and like, uh, staying undocumented or this from temporary visa to temporary visa was being more and more difficult. Right? And then so, so one of the most common uh, reasons people come uh, contemplated was whether to embark on this asylum process. They already knew it's going to be difficult. Um, and it was closely related to uh, to their the temporary and precarious working circumstances. So, for example, you know, people were already in the in precarious uh, jobs in service sectors. Then, you know, taking time off, like for whenever lawyers asked them to show up, and um, and the kind of preparation they had to do, like either to um, prepare um, their their affidavit and the questions they were being asked and how to answer them, like the rehearsing for them, rehearsing for these. Um, the testimonies and whatnot, it demanded, you know, it's a, a lot of demand on people's time. So, if you, you know, a lot of my informants were working in service sectors, domestic workers and um, restaurant workers. So they can't like just in a minute notice kind of say, oh, I can't come to work. You know, I'm, you know, you can't do that. You can only use sick leave for so many, you know, and uh, so many times and excuses. So, so it was not only uh, demanding time Right? The, the asylum seeking wasn't just demand uh, on their time, but also taking away from the, their actual work that they were doing. And then, then slowly, obviously, then the, the you know people have felt, well, this is the work I'm doing, and it's free. I don't know if I'll get asylum if I become you know, I, 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 it'll put me to path, put me on a path to um, um, obtaining a legal residency. But I have to nonetheless have to do this, right? And so. So uh, to begin from um, how it's like work is, for instance, they had to find first locating resourceful individuals, whether in the community, right, or their supporters, um, and uh, like human rights agencies, right, or, or people who knew about them. So just like employment, this was an important preliminary step to begin this process of uh, asylum legalization or making paper. So informants have, who had relied on kinship network or assistance from a powerful let's say, community member or leader, right? they had to locate lawyers to process paperwork. Um, so they talked about this difficult and long-term financial investment. Um, a pro bono lawyer, pro bono legal assistance, it's affirmative cases, but there are a lot of people who had also gone through private lawyers and had really uh, lost all their money, all the savings, uh, paying lawyers and um, you know, associates to help them find legal assistance and representation. And I think uh, the case of Mina Didi um, is a good example in the book where, you know, besides this explicit and implicit nature of wor uh, work of seeking asylum, uh, for, for, for many of my informants, the asylum advocates, uh, uh, human rights lawyers, this includes human rights lawyers, uh, litigators in private law firms, uh, it was also work for them. 
and their professional career and advancement um, and work of identity. So in the in those three uh, chapters, um, the credibility establishing, at least the logic of claiming credibility, for instance, uh, it provides a glimpse into the work of uh, asylum assistants, let's say, asylum advocates, the human rights agents, and the lawyers. And so I also wanted to show that world to the readers, because I was immersed into both in these asylum backstage. So the work in that regard was for both parties, and, and me as well. <laughs> so, um, so one of the reasons I wanted to um, show that the, the, the logic of claim, through the logic of claim and credibility chapter, the work that asylum officers, asylum, uh, sorry, asylum lawyers were doing and human rights advocates is that they, you know, for them, it's like their professional work identity, but for the clients who are, you know, they didn't think about the clients were also working, right? They, like they, how they had been, they had to leave jobs, for instance, or be unemployed and, um, you know, potentially, uh, which meant that they they cannot send money home if you're unemployed and if your job is so, uh, um, you know, being interrupted that you can't hold a stable job anyway. So, you know, that that part. So how this was this unequal, um, I wanted to show that um, unequal terms and conditions of labor through that asylum labor. So it was on both parts as asylum seeking and asylum assisting was work, but had different um, end result, a different consequence for these two different parties. But uh, so initially, I um, I didn't think the chapter, the, the logic of claim credibility, sort of uh, fit into the flow and content of Nepali migration story, asylum legalization. Um, but then, you know, as a, the book came together, I realized no, it actually fits very well in this larger narrative of asylum migrants and uh, asylum uh, Nepali migrants and asylum seekers because well, their work of suffering and incorporation into labor precariousness, you know were being directed by being instructed by these other actors you know um, and who also considered who also considered their work so it, the chapter in some ways provided the missing link you know like a connecting thread if that makes sense between the first half of the book that talks about the Nepali diaspora their migration history and the second half that slowly takes the audience deeper into the forms and content of their uh, um, like uh, legalization, this work of making paper and the suffering that is the logic that they, you know, these suffering testimonies, testimonies that are being co-constructed, performed, delivered um, in these uh, institutions, asylum institutions, were for this, you know, for this audience. So through that chapter, then I sort of look at how credibility in asylum allows these powerful social actors to impose. Um, not knowing sometimes like right, their decisions um, and how it their decisions have a, uh, have an impact on uh, on claimants not only in terms of their legal legality uh, but also in terms of their livelihood and uh, and, and their social uh, social world so and more and more um, outside Adhikar, you know people would just talk about well I work hard you know the work I do it um, um, somebody's house or in the restaurant. Yeah, that's work that everybody does. They have to do this hard work. But the asylum work, so, you know, that disrupted, like, you know, it was sort of free work that they felt they were doing. Like they had to um, do everything to find <laughs> um, 
it was very similar to finding a like looking for a job and uh, seeking employment, but like free labor that they were part of. Um, so yeah, that that that's that's how um, um, I guess that's one yeah, example of how that that became like work and intervened in their daily work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought the book um, fit together well. Nothing stuck out to me as not, you know, not fitting into the into the larger narrative of the book. Um, and I thought you wove the book together really well in that we're talking less about the um, the English language interpretation classes that you taught, but you also talk about that in the book and, and readers can, you know, obviously, you know, buy the book and read it to, to learn more about that as well as more about what you talk about with asylum. Um, but I also wanted to kind of turn the question to you as the researcher, and you just talked about how you were immersed in both worlds um, with the uh, interpretation and the, the poly community. And I wanted to ask you about your positionality as a researcher and an ethnographer, um, because you say that um so you were kind of acting as an interpreter through these asylum seekers and as a teacher of, of English. And so you were kind of facilitating Nepali's integration into the, into the United States through translation. And that you, and you mentioned, um, I think in the beginning of the book that you were a quote participant interpreter instead of, or maybe in addition to being a participant observer. And so, you know, most anthropologists would, or ethnographers would think about what we do as participant observation, where we sit and observe and, and maybe, you know, participate in these different activities that we're researching, but you use the term participant interpreter. And so I wondered what were the particularities of this kind of research? And um, can you share any, any challenges or opportunities to, to you doing this research? Yeah. Um... Certainly, I um, I think I'd start uh, by saying, you know, when I first started interpreting, um, it seemed like everything that an ethnographic research was not supposed to be, it, precisely because, as you pointed out, we know about participant observer observation. You observe first, participate, and then in your own time, you can ask questions, come back to it. Um, that I was doing through Adhikar and, um, you know, uh, my English language uh, classes and workers' rights programs, and whatnot. But here in the in the asylum institution, um, I yeah, I wasn't a participant interpreter. And what I mean by that is that I I, I had no time. Right, I, I, I had to interpret, speak, literally to first and observe and reflect later on my participation. So there was no time to kind of dwell extensively and ask questions. Lawyers were asking questions, I had to interpret immediately. So no, you know, I didn't have at that time. I didn't have the prolonged, uh, let's say, observation and probe. Um, you know, let alone analyze the situation. Um, I think uh, I, I talk about it in the book that I was literally to be heard as an echo for both parties. You know, once they finished their sentences, whether statements and. And there are times when, you know, the lawyers would sort of uh, intervene and instruct, no, you just interpret, say exactly what the person is saying. You don't need to clarify. And then there were others, you know, who would ask me to sort of put it in a context for them. Like I was also a cultural interpreter because you're an uh, anthropologist and they knew, it's like, oh, so, you know, can you provide a context for it? So some wanted me to do elaborate work, uh, but all the time, sort of that, you know, participation or nonstop. Uh, interpretation was at the f- uh, forefront 
of this work and observation came much later. And second, um, in this uh, asylum, actually, uh, the asylum institution spaces where I was interpreting and really observing later, where you know, my participation was so pronounced, uh, it, it gradually became a very important backdrop to collect data of Nepali in New York. Like, it, this, this was the life of Nepali New Yorkers day to day, besides working in these you know, uh, low-wage um, employment sectors, service sectors, they, this is something else that they were doing, which they described as work and, and how they were doing it. So it became an important part of collecting data, so to speak. And as much later as I found you know, myself while interpreting for claimants and their human rights advocates, um, that then I sought out to then interview um, claimants um, as well as their lawyers. So these, um, again, these were not, you know, the interpretation itself was never sort of a two-way conversation, but a three-way, ongoing you know, three-way conversation that my role, it, at the time, it seemed like it never ended, whether I was interpreting, whether I was a cultural mediator, depending on what people um, expected and then um, uh, vocalized that I you know, need to do, that my role had to be. And the dilemmas, of course, is that, you know, uh, one of the dilemmas at the time was, you know, how my interpretation would negatively affect the cases or the, um, the client's claims. Um, and not so much of misinterpretation, but not, uh, you know, not misinterpretation or, um, but really I had to um, think about the larger consequence for um for them and not just immediate, you know, dwell in that immediate um, case, immediate uh, interpretation session. So, because I was already uh, involved with Adhikar's work and then um, the migrants and so the whole host of other issues that they faced, so, uh, you know, I had to put that, that context gave me uh, kind of a larger sort of, uh, <laughs> to help me leave, you know, that, uh, specific case or session to think about the uh, uh, larger consequence for people. And um, so dilemma is, oh, so, you know, I uh, declined to be actually a court interpreter. So I was like, I, I you know, or, or asylum, in the asylum office, uh, um, the court also assigns their own interpreter, asylum interpreter. Um, and I declined uh, because I, you know, because of my misunderstanding or not, uh, you know, wrong choice of wrong word. You know, somebody's uh, life is really um, uh, in line. You know, so um, so that that was a special challenge. But the opportunity, of course, was you know that allowed me this to observe and participate in this processual stage of uh, um, testimonies being co-constructed and how it actually happened in these asylum spaces from the minute, you know, um, a claim is filed and how it sort of goes through various incarnations, uh, the various versions, and depending on, you know, who comes in, the lawyers who would come and go and different uh, people working on this, um, on these claims uh, or, or these, uh, building this affidavit and training or really disciplining um, clients for witness uh, preparation. So, yeah, so that, that was the opportunity, right? It, it allowed me to analyze the importance of this asylum backstage work and uh, claim and testimony and the larger <clears throat> asylum seeking process. 
So more broadly, through this positionality, as you rightly pointed out, an extended immersion in the asylum interpretation, I was um, also able to document in a, uh, a uh, socio-legal practice of like their own internal, um, what do you call, uh, terms and conditions of suffering and depending on, uh, and contradictions, right? terms of credibility, suffering, it's a, a very abstract. So how do you actually pin it down? And then, you know, uh, it gave me an opportunity to sort of, kind of um, I wouldn't say think like lawyers, but I was talking to lawyers a lot and understanding what their own background and why they got into asylum, what about asylum they, they interested them um, or assisting asylum seekers. And um, so so it gave that opportunity where, you know, when um, actually one of the lawyers said, oh, why are you doing anthropology? You know, you can be a lawyer. Like, <laughs> I'll never forget that. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. So, um, so there was that opportunity, I guess. Yeah, I can. <laughs> um, um, and I mean, I think to put it back to our um, anthropology uh, debate on, you know, native anthropologists, uh, uh, famous uh, article by Kieran Naring that everybody quotes how native is a native anthropologist. I was, and I always say, um, you know, I'm a semi-native right? Anthropolo anthropologist in these uh, various um, spaces, uh, whether as a sort of a distant, um, in, um, I guess, a knowledgeable outsider or a distant insider for Nepalese uh, and claimants, uh, you know, Nepali asylum seekers, um, because I grew up in the U in the US. So they were like, oh, you know the system. So you t you tell them, you know, what our real problem is. That, that kind of, some people <laughs> had that expectations also. But also as a, quote unquote, like a knowledgeable um, outsider for um, lawyers and you know, saying, oh, you give us context for uh, the Nepalan history and, you know, like what this person is saying to help us understand, like in a matter of, I don't know, days <laughs> um, or months. And I mean, I, I, I won't lie, but I did um, send them some of the articles, right, anthropology articles about Nepal and, you know, one lawyer even saying, well, the judge will not know where Nepal is or if Nepal is a country. So the person has to act in a particular way that he or she can imagine the suffering. And, you know, then you're just like, wow. You know, then I, I know, I remember just in my head, I thought, I was thinking, shouldn't I be interpreting for the judge then, really? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, yeah, so yeah, no, that is that is fascinating <laughs> when you say that the person was like, You could be a lawyer, it's like the multiple <laughs> pathways not taken, and um, and I think it's interesting too because when you are an anthropologist um, or an ethnographer in general, um, in a certain place, you yourself learn another you know, instead of you, you learn to a certain extent, another aspect of expertise, like you learn their language, like, like we always talk about, you know, and we always think, oh, the language is, is another language. It's Spanish or it's Portuguese or it's, it's, you know, it's the late, it's the language spoken, but no, it's also a professional language sometimes or particular terms that are used or, you know, trying to understand, okay, what do the lawyers want? Or, you know, what, what do, uh, what are these these people like talking about as far as like the offices you're entering into, <laughs> um, you know, cause it's not always a given, um, you know, what it is they're talking about. So no, that's fascinating. And that comes across in the book too, where the book is very grounded ethnographically in the cases, uh, that you're, that you're talking about. Okay. Um, thank you. Um, so I was going to, 
just pause. Take uh, a break, pause. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I need to. Um, okay, so the book has a lot of photos in it from Adhikar protests, um, teaching ESL, and other Nepali community activities. And um, Adhikar, which we already talked about, the organization, is working to educate migrants about employment issues, and, and they're also working to meet their social and economic needs. Um, but they're also producing a kind of visibility for the Nepali community, which you talk about in the book. And so I was wondering, what are the complexities of this of this visibility of the Nepali community that you find? Oh, great. Thank you uh, for that question, Regan. I think it is the one that I struggled with most while conducting field work, um, you know, after gathering data and ultimately deciding to write of my dissertation, um, um, you know, dissertation actually doesn't take up so much about the uh, Adhikar, uh, the visibility question at all. And then in the book, I just, I decided to bring it back to Adhikar and then what it means for the um, Nepali population or this segment of Nepali speaking population in New York City or Nepali New Yorkers. So thank you for that, you know, allowing me to actually uh, respond to that question. And so, <clears throat> You know, through advocacy, like organizing on mobilization, as you pointed out, about uh, raising awareness, but also, you know, educating about immigration laws, changing immigration laws and policies, um, you know, keeping up with the policies themselves and, um, and like English language or workers' rights programs uh, and workshops were one of these, but also sort of, you know, mobilizing people to demand for the right. I go, go to um, Albany. And these protests and big marches, as you saw in the photos that Vadika um, was uh, participating in, along with other um, grassroots and migrant um, grassroots organizations, immigrant rights organizations, sort of social justice and rights, you know, all these uh, different groups of organizations. So there's also, there's a, uh, like me, these uh, Nepali. Uh, leaders, uh, community organizers, the activists were also interpreting like, for the um, broader groups of activists and migrant activist groups and organizations, the, the specific issues that Nepali were facing. Like. So they, they were also, you know, I, they also saw themselves as cultural mediators and interpreters. And I, you know, um, and, I, I, and I mean, I join in that pool of um, interpreter in that level in that sense as well so they were keenly aware of their uh, relatively privileged position in becoming these designated or accidental cultural facilitator interpreter representatives to speak on behalf of you know the suffering members of the community and you know always to sort of how to balance their or leverage their privilege this their privileged social position and i saw that and i'm also one of them right to what do what did they want to get out of this visibility with, you know, within the larger Asian American advocacy groups and uh, the activist world in New York and beyond New York with domestic uh, workers um, organizations? And, you know, um, I think the similar dilemmas or, or challenges that I we have as anthropologists also working in the community, that what do we want? There are a lot of different things that you learn and once you immerse in the community and people, their struggles, their um issues and so i saw you know very 
um, sort of complementary to my own positions of what they were trying to do. And then that's why I think it was important for me to, in the book, to come back to that question of now what does that mean then, you know? And also, I, I, I was also in a sense, because I had been working with Nepali um, um, migrants teaching language classes that, and all interpreting for them in, in the asylum legalization within the outside Adhikar also. I was also an interpreter, internal interpreter for Adhikar, you know, because I was part of the board also, board member later, even and after the you know, discontinued as a board member, in a way saying, this is what people are saying and these are the issues that people go through and, you know, like how to um, incorporate that, incorporate their voices within what Adhikar is trying to say so that it's legible for people not only in the activist circle, academic circle, like the, um, you know, as I mentioned, the USCIS, the, you know, the official level, like the policymakers. And so I really saw it as complementary. And I think before that, as an anthropologist, you're always like, oh, the, you know, the um, activists, advocates, they have their own uh, world. But I, I didn't really see that as being sort of uh, separate. And, you know, you're working towards similar goal, you know, vision, of course, the ways in which you were attaining or trying to reach that goal was different because you know the activists, the, the organizers, they're up and in front, and and as anthropologists, we're more sort of um, observing, and we have this luxury almost right to sort of just observe and ask people question what they're doing. And I think through my interpretation work, I I I, I didn't have that opportunity, and I realized, oh wow, you know, later on that. This is what just you know just participation nonstop has you know these challenges and um, <clears throat> opportunities that they provide. So, because I saw that, uh, I guess let me put it uh, in another way. Like I realized that disengagement, right, from this dominant form and narrative of migrant community or migrant suffering, is not possible. It's not a viable option. And the question was, you know, what forms of engagement? do these uh, you know, community activists, organizers, uh, leaders should you know, take or they're taking and what does it look like? I think that's what the uh, book is trying to do, both show both. Yes, for survival of the community, this visibility has all these, uh, you know, it's a paradox within a community, but also to show that there's myriad, uh, you know, diversity of um, voices, social positions, depending on their migration history, their settlement, their education, both in Nepal and um, you know, and in the U.S., and and also you know can't obviously narrowly conceptualize. And neither the uh, organization like Adhikar or I am trying to say this is the last word on Nepali, you know, Nepalis in New York, <laughs> Nepalis in the U.S., but a certain sort of segment of that population are going through. But you know that these differences in opinions, uh, ideological positions, do not have to be a reason not to advocate, not to, um, you know, um, advocate for visibility and in whatever language, however um, maybe reducing, reductive it might be, to uh, put forth um, issues that does, you know, that issues that do affect people in the larger community. So I saw, so that, you know, that important role. And tied to that, um, I, I mean, I would just like to say that with, tied to that visibility, um, was the role of silence. I um, I noticed, um, I mean, I document, although not as an analytical entry point or you know, framework, I don't really discuss silence as a, the way I do suffering or all these other 
um, concept. Um, the important role of finance, which was everywhere, is like you know this uh, ESL student participants, whether they're like interpreting um, or they're talking to me, and then the silent gazes during um, class classroom that led me to their like real issue with language and work or in the asylum institutional uh, spaces where, you know, uh, sometimes uh, the claimants and I would just look at each other in silence and I was like, is this for real? Like, you know, <laughs> we've gone through this uh, story a hundred times and then, you know, you still can't remember or, you, you know, you're asking me to, so like, you know, those silences or just people kind of, uh, and claimants in these space, institutional spaces where, you know, they've worked so hard, uh, they, they've been working physically doing manual labor and then they've asked to come to these um, sessions very alert and attentive and you know they're just sort of just remain kind of silent like silence is like the, this variation of uh, silence that I, I noted and in, in the book also so rather than isolate the silence um, as a you know as a literal act or absence of speech I consider and I want you know I hope the readers find that too they consider silence as a presence, sort of beyond speech, you know, expression of the suffering testimonies or generalities um, of specific legalization um, experience, but also the extensive, uh, you know, documentation of their lives and suffering. So in the tracing, like the silence acts and actions, um, how uh, migrant labor um, and their suffering through this asylum enforcement is continuously reproduced so so through the book i i wanted to open up you know um our space for this conversation on what does silently visible migrant community look like um and more precisely what would that visibility in communities own terms look like and um i think that the paradox of visibility as you uh, pointed out and i talk extensively in the book and coming back to Adhikar, its work, and uh, really um, sort of re-engaging with the community activists and organizers, um, I thought with a, you know, provided a nice conclusion to or to the book to to uh, really look at visibility and not say, you know, this is the vinyl, this is visibility of this, provide, producing this visibility, the organization is producing its visibility, it has its own um, conditions, terms and conditions, and paradoxes like any others, um, like any other forms of visibility. So, you know, um, despite this visit, uh, the paradoxes, you, you, you know, the the important work that Adhikar is doing in terms of their ongoing social justice work, migrant um, workers' rights activism, um, to me, again, uh, it was important, and I think it's, it provides this important platform and voice for. Um, to connect with other um, marginalized, let's say, diaspora and migrant communities, um, and hopefully, you know, that. Uh, so, in, in in that way, I think yes, the paradox remains, and it paradox uh, is precisely what makes uh, <laughs> you know this uh, community sustain and survive, but um, in its own terms and conditions. And you continue to sort of uh, collaborate with them, and yeah. I think I'll just end there. Okay. Thank you so much for this rich description of, of your work and of the book. Um, and I know that people will really um, 
just really get a lot out of reading the book and reading about the the stories that you tell from the you know from the Nepali community um, and its relation to migration. So the final question I have, I guess, is now that surviving the sanctuary city is out in the world, um, what is the next project for you? Or, you know, what do you have on the horizon? Um, Are you working on any projects now? Um, Or what are you planning to do? So um, since leaving the US uh, for the last 10 years, (laughs) almost 10 years now, um, I've been looking at uh, Nepali migration or migration trajectories in Southeast and East Asia. So I looked at uh, uh, migration, Nepali migration to Malaysia, uh, an article. Um, it's already been accepted in current anthropology, so it'll come out. So looking more in uh, not so, uh, so much of migration or migrants, but the management of uh, infrastructure, migra- well, like migration infrastructure is a whole literature out on migration infrastructure and how it functions in inter-Asian migration. So that's the project that I'm working on. And uh, I've, I've been based in Japan for the last five and a half years or five years. So uh, looking at um, <clears throat> um, how um, Nepali student migration to Japan um, has been historic or a contemporary Nepali student migration to Japan and education intermediaries, how they play a role um, in sustaining this inter-Asian migration, but larger migration infrastructure. So, you know, it's still... Uh, builds on my interest in um, Nepali diaspora and migration, but less about uh, uh, migrants and more about the, the ways in which they are managed. In some ways, the book already, you know, when working for that book, but that research, it already provided me that window of like just whole host of people, institutional, private actors managing, really managing low-wage migrants. And so it's a continuation, I would say, um, of that. Uh, initial interest, but uh, in the context of uh, uh, Asia, inter-Asian mobilities. So that's, uh, yeah, so an article is uh, coming out next year, hopefully, uh, on this infrastructural mediation and um, migration infrastructure that is sustained, sort of to, you know, to rip how, yeah, labor, low-wage labor migration across Asia is sustained, and Nepali case as an example. Hmm. That sounds great. And congratulations. Congratulations on the book coming out, Surviving the Sanctuary City, but also congratulations on um, this article coming out in Current Anthropology. So we will be on the lookout for that. And um, thank you for discussing your book with us on the New Books Network. So I have been speaking with Dr. Tina Shrestha, the author of the book, Surviving the Sanctuary City, Asylum-Seeking Work in Nepali, New York, published by the University of Washington Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank you so much, Regan, for having me. And, you know, this, uh, um, this has been such a pleasure and um, so it's one of the you know first interviews I've done so on, on the book. So it's it, it's great. Thank you very much for the yeah providing me with this uh, opportunity and the platform you know to um, say what yeah say what I'd like to say about the book besides what the book does and you know for other readers and uh, hopefully there'll be a lot of a lot more readers and thank you for reading it so closely. <laughs> Thank you. No, and I I know there will be more readers. And uh, thank you so much to listeners who are listening to this interview.